Hello, this is World Focus from Brussels. My name is Svet Helgason. Ukrainians are united in fighting the Russian invading forces on the battlefield, but also in the information space. In this episode, I speak to Dmitry Pleshikov, a young Ukrainian tech entrepreneur who was a speaker at the Riga Strathcom Dialogue. Like millions of his fellow citizens, Dmitry decided to help his government in the war effort. We discuss how to tell the story of Ukraine to the world and effectively counter the flood of disinformation from the enemy. The war in Ukraine isn't just being fought on the ground, of course. It's also happening in the information space. Russia is churning out a nearly constant stream of fake stories to support its military aims. Yeah, my name is Dmitry Plyashakov. I'm from Ukraine. I'm a tech entrepreneur and I'm building a company called Osovul. That's the company that helps governments and organizations combat uh, Russian and other malicious influence operations and be more resilient on the information uh, battleground. So before 24th of February 2022, you were just a regular civilian, right? Uh, yeah, I was actually an entrepreneur building AI uh, companies uh, and had nothing to do with the defense sector and with information security. I was into technologies and generally had some connections in the government because in Ukraine these days there are many younger people entering the government. So I knew quite some people there and that was the state of things on my side. Yeah. And then Russia did their full-scale invasion on 24th of February 2022. What was the first thing you did? Uh, I remember the first thing I did, I actually uh, wrote a, uh, like the, the first th- real thing I did, because first you get like frozen. Uh, then I uh, managed to structure uh, my mind and I wrote a post uh, in English, uh, addressing all my you know, English-speaking friends and uh, audience, uh, trying to explain what's happening in simple words from a real peop- from a real person, like a story. So uh, <laughs> trying to get as much attention as possible, because I think back then, uh, overall, what we were over trying to do is to shout as loud as possible to say, hey, look what's happening. It's insane. Like it's not even, uh, you cannot grasp what's going on. And then describe to me how this came about that you started working for the, or with and for mm-hmm. the Ukrainian government on doing and a little bit in more detail if you can on what you actually do. Yeah, so I can start uh, tell the story. Uh, it, it's on, why, on one hand, it's pretty typical for Ukraine because after 24th of February, a lot of people, and by a lot I mean really millions of people, started to find their place in this new reality and try and w- for, to find ways to be useful, this way or another. So some people went to trenches and it's a great honor. Some people went to become on-ground volunteers, bringing goods, bringing stuff, bringing humanitarian support to people, to civilians. And some people who had some special skills, in particular the people from high-tech, they started to think, how can we apply our skills to this new type of warfare? Because it's obviously changed, right? And there is a place for technology somewhere. And there were a few streams of uh, technological development. So there are things like automated uh, uh, unmanned uh, unmanned aerial vehicles or drones, right? And many teams are building that. There are technologies in cybersecurity. And obviously the information security is super important because there's a lot of things happening on the info battleground. Russian narratives, propaganda, disinfo, attacks, influence operations, etc. It started from day zero and it kept happening. And at some point, uh, like, and we've been actively talking to people from government, asking guys what is the kind of help you need. 
because our background was mostly in the AI and data, and the closest track to that is actually information operations. And it appeared that the, the help was actually needed. And we started uh, the first project we made, it was in March, so pretty soon. And then one, one after another, we started to collaborate with more and more teams within the government who were addressing the problems. The problems were, you need to, what were the problems, right? First, you need to identify what are the campaigns uh, attacking you right now? What are the operations or what are the narratives being spread? What are the disinformation attacks? By, by the Russians. Yeah, because you know, currently that's our like <laughs> that's our enemy. Yeah, so I would say 95% of them were from Russia. Maybe some Chinese, but not much. Uh, so yes, we want to understand what's happening, and then you want to understand to analyze precisely what is it. But by what is it, I mean how big is it? So there, are, there is a bunch of questions. Like where does it originate from? Let's say there is a campaign. Who started the campaign? Who is like the source? And then what was the distribution pattern? Was it distributed? using, you know, these Russian-affiliated accounts, or maybe some Ukrainians participated, or maybe some Western media participated. Maybe New York Times reposted the disinformation. And that's a big problem. You need to approach New York Times then and convince them that that's not something they should post, right? And they should take it down. And then you want to understand how organic is the impact. Because you can, it, it can seem like a huge thing, but in reality, it's very, like, it's a bubble of fake and echo chambers, and in reality, it's not big at all. Or it might be really big, and then it's bigger of a threat. And then you come up with a response strategy. And you, as a government body, as a government agency, you have a set of tools that you can apply. You can generate and debunk your own communication. You can adjust the narratives that you are you know, crafting and communicating publicly. You can uh, involve your partners like the civil society to push particular things. You can try to take down the malicious accounts who are involved and bot networks and all that stuff. You can come up with some policies and uh, some legislation towards uh, your uh, security. So a wide range of instruments, and you want to understand in which situation how to act, and should you even act. Some things you skip, and some, some things you prioritize, some things you ignore. So in this whole context, you talked about the people in the trenches, you know, doing the actual fighting, but still, how important is this for the war effort by Ukraine? in winning the war? Yeah, I think uh, it's extremely important. Why? Because uh, those attacks, those information attacks, they are trying to target the very vulnerable but very critical and important parts of this military success. Uh, the military success on top of the trenches part, right, on top of the actual fight, it stands on other aspects. One of which is stability in the society and the unity, right, because when the, the whole society supports the army, supports the idea of the victory, and, support, and believes that the victory is possible, that's what makes us so, such a strong uh, nation and such a strong army. I think that's the secret source of Ukraine, if you would put it this way. And of course, uh, Russians are trying to target this and uh, ruin this unity. So provoke the chaos, provoke the mis distrust between the people. Having that, if they are successful in this, many efforts will fail, because if different, you know, branches of government stop believing each other, if army versus politicians versus civil society versus uh, soldiers, if there is a distrust, it's a terrible situation to be at. That's why, that's why they're doing so much, pushing so much efforts to make that happen, but luckily they failed because there is a strong resistance on the Ukrainian side and a good defense. A second component is international support. Right? Our successes are strongly independent on the international support. That's why they are taking that. And on the international arena, 
They are pushing the narratives and the stories, trying to discredit Ukraine, trying to picture us as an ineffective, as a corrupt state, that these weapons are being resold on the black market, that all victories are not real, and so on and so forth. And so, of course, they are taking the places, you know, they don't do random attacks. They attack very precisely, very good targeting, understanding what do they need to achieve. So this defense is essential, I would say. There was uh, a really good panel here yesterday, uh, um, Ukrainian masterclass, uh, where still the participants, including Ukrainians, pushed back a little bit of this concept that, hey, Ukraine has won the information war, saying, yes, there have been successes, like you described, but also we have, you know, we still have to win the war. The war is still ongoing in the information space, although some part of something won. Do you agree with that? Uh, basically, nobody should get complacent. No, I don't, I don't think we won the information war. I like the way the Prime Minister of Latvia put it in, this, in his introductory call here, that this information war happens on different also like battlefields, one of which is the West, and in the West we might claim that we are at least successful, right? We might not have won it, but we're having good times. Uh, but then there are other battlegrounds. There is a global South where the situation is very different, and th- there is the internal, uh, internal info space of Ukraine. So I would say that in the internal info space, we got really successful and we are able to resist and keep this unity in place, which is very important, to stay united, to stay organized and synchronized. So I would say that if we grade it from 1 to 10, so our success on the internal uh, ground would be something like 9, so pretty high. Then if we take the West, it will be like in the upper half, so it will be maybe 7, right? We have successes, but we have also problems which we need to solve. But if we're talking about the Global South and Asia, uh, it will be a different picture, right? There is a lot to do there, and we still need to find a way and the messages and the narratives to talk to that people and explain them the reality so they can understand it and they can uh, relate to this. Is it partly because the Russians have been somewhat successful in that part of, of, of uh, the world and is it also because of history where the, where the Russians have been perhaps successful in you know, using colonial narratives, you know, pointing out that hey, the West is hypocritical because of their you know, colonial powers, etc. Is it a mix perhaps? Yeah, like to my understanding, that's exactly the reason, because Russians, they know which buttons to push, right? And they find weaknesses in other nations and in other contexts. And so they understand that West have its, has its own legacy and has its own problems. And so it's easy to push, push on it, right? And, uh, and get the results. So, of course, there is tension between the past colonies and the past colonizers. And Russia is effectively using this narrative, saying, okay, you see who supports Ukraine? France, the UK, America, so it's a colonial thing, and we are the victim here. And for those guys, it's easy to relate to this because they used to be the victims of the same nations. And they, it's easier for them to relate to this than to the fact that the huge, the biggest country in the world is attacking small Ukraine, right, with the huge army and the country having nukes. So the, the real balance is quite the opposite, but the, it's easy for them to buy the story because it's very appealing. Russia has been playing the victim card again and again yeah. again, basically saying that, hey, we're defending ourselves, this is self-defense, this is of course turning things on its head. Yeah. But to counter that, what if you were to summarize your story, your narrative, the strongest narrative that Ukraine has, what would that be? Wow, what a question. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think it's a narrative which is as old as the world, right, about David and Goliath battle. And, and 
it's interestingly, Russia is also trying to utilize kind of the same narrative put upside down. Uh, but in, in, in reality, uh, if you take context into consideration, if you, if you look really what's happening, right, it's a situation where a huge and strong machine, military machine, that's been prepared for this for years, is attacking a much smaller, much weaker uh, country. And uh, I like the, the way, uh, I don't remember the or- origin of this, but it was quite a popular uh, like notion and uh, visualization of this. If Russia uh, stops to fight, there is no war. If Ukraine stops to fight, there is no Ukraine. I think that summarizes pretty nicely in, like, in one line, right? We have not nowhere to retreat. We have no way out of this because we didn't choose to enter this. We were forced to take part in this tragedy. And the only way we have is to take back what is our territory and what's our people and like what's our independence. Thank you very much for talking to World Focus from Brussels.